live from Washington, D.C. This is Backroom Politics with moderator Justin Russell. And hello out there in Radio Land. It is time for the best political talk show you've never heard of. It is Backroom Politics live from Podcast Village up here in Upper Georgetown, Washington, D.C., Joining me as they do every episode, he is the former Undersecretary of Commerce for International Trade, served at last count under four presidents. He is the one we know as Alan Moore. Hello, Alan. Hello, Justin. And directly across from me in studio today, he is the former White House Economic Security Advisor to President Barack Obama. He is now a partner at the great firm Wilkie Farr. He is David Mortlock. Hello, David. Hello, Justin. And I'm good sure to see you. Gonna, yeah, it's good to see you, too, brother. Good to have you back in studio. And, of course, we'll probably have others checking in randomly. We'll announce them as they pop in. We've got a full schedule on this show today. Obviously, we're going to start off with the uh, sad news that occurred uh, late Friday night. Uh, in case you haven't heard, uh, President, uh, the 41st President of the United States, George Herbert Walker Bush, passed away Friday night late. Uh at his home in Houston, Texas. He was surrounded by family, surrounded by dear friends, including former Secretary of State uh, George um, uh, James Baker James Baker, and uh, other family members. Uh, it was not, not unexpected, but, I mean, President Bush was 94, but it, it still kind of comes as a kind of a hit to uh, the American... The American society, the American voters, he was, uh, in especially in recent years, more beloved than maybe when he left office. Ellen Moore? Oh, most definitely. I mean, he, he, when, he, when he left office, he just lost a presidential election. Um, and and uh, that, that was a useful reminder that, uh, that the American people uh, had stopped loving him. Um, it, was a, it was an odd election, which we can talk about, but... but uh, because um, I think President Clinton obviously won. I think he he won with the lowest percentage of of the popular vote of anybody in modern history. But that's because we had Ross Perot uh, taking nineteen percent. But um, but uh, over time, um, as often happens, um, we we find that we miss people, especially people of class and quality and and sacrifice. Um, and uh, uh, and service, uh, and that was uh, that was certainly what what President uh, Bush forty one uh, exemplified. And uh, joining us on the phone from the Chicagoland area, the Windy City, she is the TV on air talent and production talent that we know as Laura Chavez. Hey, Laura, how are you? I'm great, thanks. Barely staying warm. Oh, I can imagine. Hey, Laura, you know you. You remember the the Bush forty one presidency? Uh, we're starting to see history revisit him. Uh, is this hindsight being twenty twenty with uh, President Bush? I think, as with a lot of, as Alan said, a lot of really classy uh, leaders and world leaders who showed a good amount of dignity and respect for their fellow man, um, history will look fondly on them. Uh, by no means is uh, Bush 41 a saint, but I think looking back on him, we definitely have a bit more perspective. So, like to use the phrase you just used, hindsight being 2020, history I think will be 
favorable to him when it comes to personality and when it comes to family and when it comes to a lot of other things. I think uh, there will be several aspects of his presidency that will be criticized for eternity. But I know for a fact, especially right after you lose someone, um, be it close or not, you have a tendency to remind to remember them fondly. And I think that we will probably be remembering uh, Bush 41 uh, fondly for quite some time. I think history will look back on him as maybe not the best president, but someone who carried themselves and re- represented the nation very well. You know, D- David Mortlock, I- I've said for many years that President Bush 41, George Herbert Walker Bush, was the last president to really show true political courage. When he made the infamous, when he, when he made the infamous read my lips, no new taxes pledge, it was literally in the last throes of his first term when his economic advisor saying, boss, we got a problem, and he made the decision, look, we're going to have to raise taxes or else we're going to send the country into an economic tailspin. Was that, in fact, true political courage putting the putting the country, the American taxpayer, in front of partisan politics? I mean, some say it cost him the election. So that that is a great point. I mean, I think I think on domestic issues and on uh, on on the economy in particular. It's a it's a complicated legacy, and and you know you you bring up a really poignant moment in his legacy, which was the you know no no new taxes promise, yet eventually reaching a compromise uh, with Democrats uh, in order to to create a um, create a spending bill that that included um, spending cuts uh, or included you know some tax cuts, some tax increases, right? right. A, a true compromise, but you know it's more complicated than that because you know let's keep in mind. You know, when running for the presidency in 1980, uh, this is the same George Bush who uh, called Ronald Reagan's trickle-down economics voodoo economics. Right. You know, he pointed out, as has history time and time again, that 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 does not work uh, the way that Reagan was suggesting it worked. Um, And yet, when when he became Ronald Reagan's uh, running mate, he denied he'd even ever said that. Uh, and so, you know, it was it, he got on board uh, the vice presidency at a time that the Republican Party was was changing, but, was less willing to compromise. But, and, but that then goes to the point that this was true political courage. I mean, Alan Moore, going off of what David was saying, he showed political courage by going against not only his former president and his economic views, but against the general consensus of the party as a whole. So. Let's remember what actually occurred during during his presidency. Um, the two big foreign policy accomplishments were the Iraq War, which took a hundred hours, and it was a coalition of other other governments, other countries, uh, and their militaries, and it it was very successful. It was very fa- It was very quick. It left Saddam Hussein in place in Iraq, but it got him out of uh, out of Kuwait, and it was truly an international effort. It was pretty remarkable. Um, uh, the 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 casualties being so low, um, and and then he was also in place when the Berlin Wall fell and when the Soviet Union split up. Something that he he had been 
He wasn't the first to advocate. He had talked about it as had as as had president. He spent a lot of his career fighting it. President Reagan had had, had been involved. He was a, he was a loyal partner to President Reagan, and and that happened on his watch, and that was very important, and it was a big deal, and he deserves certainly some of the credit for that. The economy later in his term began to to show a lot of weakness. Uh, you, you'll all remember that President uh, that now President Clinton, then candidate Clinton's message throughout was it's the economy stupid so stick with the economy stick with the economy stick with the economy they got a lot of help because ross perot um was was a a big critic of what had gone on in washington um and he had a following um and most of his following came from the republican side and and most had he not run chances are uh bush would have been reelected. we'll 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 never know but to deal with the economic crisis that was emerging and looming, um, the President Bush sent his director of OMB, a man named Richard Darman, Dick Darman, sidebar, my first boss in Washington in 1971. <laughs> wow. He wasn't a full-blown Dick Darman yet, but he was he, one smart guy. He was on his way and to. He certainly was. So so now we're, we're, we're all the way to 92, and... There's a there's a group at Andrews Air Force Base that basically locks themselves up. Republicans and Democrats. Darman is sort of in control of, of of the of the narrative, and they're trying to put a compromise together. What they did was agree to some tax increases, and this was the big problem later for the old uh, "read my lips, no new taxes" promise that un, that that unfortunately the Bush had made and was recorded and remembered. What is little remembered. And what was key to Bush deciding he would do this was some spending caps that Darman and his people designed that had teeth in them. There'd been efforts to put spending caps in place many, many times. They had failed. These guys created a system that worked. It was part of the big deal. The deal was enacted. Some Republicans went nuts. And President, the great irony is that President Clinton, under whose uh, uh, presidency we actually had some balanced budgets, got those balanced budgets because they couldn't spend the money that they wanted to spend because and a whole of the host Bush. Of, because of these spending right. caps that that Dick Darman and his people had had created and made part of this deal. So Dick Darman, he he died some years ago, but he. He was vilified thereafter as the guy who caused George Bush to break his promise. No, George Bush was not stupid. He made George his Bush own, knew what he was doing. He made his own decision. He knew this was risky. He right. knew he had gotten himself into a box, and he knew he was going to have to somehow explain this. He thought it was the right thing to do. Right. It was the right thing to do, but he paid a huge political price for it. Cost him in the second term. David Mortlock, the, the international effects that— uh, President Bush had. I mean, you're, you're talking. He was the first special envoy to China under under Nixon. Uh, former director of Central Intelligence under uh, Gerald Gerald Ford. His understanding of the geopolitical scene was, I would say. I, I mean, I would largely say not because that you know we're paying you know homage to him, but he was probably the one president that got it better than anybody. So. Yeah, I think this is a great point, which is that, uh, you know, I think 
at least from my perspective, uh, you look at a fairly mixed record uh, on domestic policy, both on economics, uh, race relations, um, uh, gay rights, um, you know, especially in hindsight. But on the international field, I think, you know, this is really where he left an incredible mark. Uh, and I think he, he was the right man at the right time um, on the two issues that Alan mentioned, especially, which was, um, you know, the, the, the Iraq war um, and repelling the invasion of Kuwait. It was done by coalition. It was well-planned. It had firm uh, goals. Right. Um, and and then also uh, with with the the fall of the Soviet Union, it, you know it, it, that could have been a much more violent, chaotic, bloody event in the world, right. uh, and it was not. And you listen to those old tapes of Bush in those press conferences where the reporters say, you know, shouldn't you be more giddy? Uh, shouldn't you be more celebratory regarding what is happening? And he said he, he never did a victory. He, lap he for didn't. It. He did not because he knew that that we needed stability. We needed cool heads uh, right. in that moment. And I think you know my view is that that saved lives. It saved uh, a lot of global turmoil. I, I think it really had an incredibly positive impact. It, it, and I got to tell you something. You know, you bring up the the both of you guys brought up the Gulf War. Um. As somebody who served during, that was my war. Gulf War One was my war. And the efficiency that it was done with, the effectiveness that it was done with, and the true command, the, the true command decisions that Bush made, uh, a lot of the, a lot of the lower um, in the field grunts were like, look, let's go get, let's go get Saddam. Let's go get this guy. Being older now, I realized it was the smart move. Having Bush not go in, Bush kept together in a very delicate coalition by having the wherewithal to say, look, our mission and what all of the coalition members signed on for was to uh, discharge Iraq out of Kuwait. Anything out of that is out of scope, and I'm not going to risk becoming the international villain of taking out a sovereign nation uh, I, I think it was a gutsy I think it was gutsy I think it was I, I still agree with it a lot of people don't we had the opportunity even his own command staff uh Schwart, Norman Schwarzkopf questioned it all the way till the day he died uh but I, I, I think that showed the the real true understanding of the world that 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 uh Bush 41 had that we're that will I don't think we'll ever see again. Yeah, and I think I think just to make a quick follow-on point to you here, which is, uh, you know, we we don't even have to play what if, right? Because we saw. I'll leave it up to your judgment whether you think it was the right thing to do or not. But we saw the consequences of an invasion in Iraq. You know, a decade later, ironically, his son. Uh, ironically, his yeah. son, or unironically, uh, his son. Uh, you know, we saw the consequences of that. We saw right. the costs of that. So we don't have to play what if. Laura Chavez. Well, hang on, just before we drop that. All right, we can always play what if. A lot of things happen in ten years, so we don't. It's not like we say that we 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 waited and then it's exa- things were exactly the same. Let's also remember that what we thought was going to happen when we quickly got out of there was that that, that Saddam Hussein would collapse. Um, that was the big argument. A, we've succeeded. We've done what we needed to do. They're out of Kuwait. 
and we have so weakened him militarily and in the eyes of his people that surely he will collapse. Well, he didn't collapse. And then over time, over the next 10 years, he, he, he built up. We clearly didn't understand all that we were dealing with, and we clearly made bad decisions uh, vis-a-vis weapons of mass destruction when we made the decision I mean, to go in. We can, uh, we can do an entire show on actionable intelligence. I'm not going to get Hey, Lord Chavez, you know, we're, we're seeing a very active, younger electorate um, – coming into fruition these days we saw it after the midterms i guess my question is knowing what we know about george hw bush would bush have been somebody that could have garnered the attention of the younger voters today oh gosh to be perfectly honest i would love to have faith in the younger voters to say they would totally listen to him and you know he they would definitely take advantage of all their social media, but he was wildly parodied. And a lot of the places that um, the younger generation, as you so eloquently put it, get their news, their media, their information would not have been kind to him. Uh, Even if you look at the way he uh, kind of, um, as every politician does, kind of flip-flopped on women's issues. Like at first he made a hard stance where he was, open to abortion, and then he wasn't, and then he backtracked on that again. Um, That is something that I don't know if, well, yes, internationally, he made big steps. He, you know, on those bigger issues with the economy, he might have, you know, he did, as Alan said, uh, help lead to uh, the Clinton balanced budget. But I would argue that on the issues that counted to a younger generation, be it gun control, women's rights, uh, as uh, David mentioned, um, the rights of the LGBT, LGBTQ community, I don't think he would have had necessarily the pull that he would have needed to uh, garner that vote. With that said, I don't think he would necessarily have needed it. I think he would have still resonated with a lot of people of an older generation, um, not an older generation, I apologize, that shouldn't be how I put it, but of someone outside of the uh, millennial faction. Alan Moore, Laura brought up a really good point. Uh, the fact that, you know, he was parodied a lot. Everybody remembers the Dana Carvey parody on Saturday Night Live, which, you know, in today's world, we see Trump being parodied and it just drives him up a wall. The funny thing about it is uh, Bush 41 didn't take himself that seriously. In fact, actually, actually brought Dana Carvey to the White House Christmas party to parody him, and he even appeared on Saturday Night Live with Dana Carvey, and they actually grew to be good friends. Exactly. Imagine the parallel. Imagine Donald Trump inviting Alec Alec Baldwin Baldwin to come to the White House (laughs) to do a a Trump parody. There's no way to wrap your your, your, your thoughts, your mind around such a crazy idea because Trump clearly despises him. It's not that, that, that President Bush loved looking like that and I'm sure would say to people, is that how I sound? Yeah. And, and then people would say, well, yeah, sometimes. Here, look at this clip. Look at that clip. And he would say, oh, darn. He could poke fun at himself. Oh, yeah. Most presidents, not all, 
but most have some ability to do that, or at least they do in a moment if there's a, a, a funny speech they're supposed to give. The current president seems to have no capacity for that uh, at all. Uh, trying to figure out, though, how, how George, uh, how President Bush H.W., 40, Bush 41, would be seen today, I don't know. It's just, it, it's, it, it, it's apples and oranges. It's a different time and place. I mean, it, it, as Laura accurately said, it, it the Bush of then wouldn't really resonate today, but but the Bush of then would likely have have continued to change and evolve. Um, he changed on some issues for political reasons. Um, those are deal killers for a lot of voters. Um, he changed. Uh, but is it fair he, to say, is it fair to say that that the electorate has changed? I mean, that the electorate has changed. We've become more of a polarized 30-second soundbite electorate than we were back then? No question. Um, I mean, the, 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 the gulf is wider um, between the, the, the two sides. The re- Republicans have moved to the right. Rep- Democrats have moved to the left. The middle is thinned out. Um, that's occurred. And then you have social media and, and messaging, no, the, the decline of newspapers, the decline right. of, of, of magazines, the decline of nightly news, right. of, of being a news source, and the rise of, of Facebook, of all things, and Twitter, of being sources of news and information <laughs> for people, people like, like we try to be, to, be, to have some facts at hand, some knowledge, some perspective. Right. Um, uh, is just horrifying. Um, uh, the uh, this low information voter that we often talk about is a low information voter. They don't have the patience. They don't have the curiosity. Uh, they don't have the sense of history to 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 dig in more deeply. We've got we've got a president who's a, of a different age, but he's got some of those same characteristics. Um, he he operates instinctively. He reads headlines. He reads a certain slice of uh, or sees. A Are you certain talking about Trump? Sli- I'm talking about our current president, absolutely, uh, who who listens to Fox News and and gets one perspective. Yeah. I think it's great to listen to Fox News as long as you listen to MSNBC too and the nightly news and read some of the major newspapers and talk to people right. and be curious and and retain stuff and read. Um, in-depth analysis Or do what Bush 41 does or did. Don't watch TV. He was an avid reader. He read the newspapers, read briefings all the time. But I want to go to Laura Chavez real quick. Uh, Laura, how important was, particularly after he left office, the relationship that he had with his his family and, more importantly, with Barbara, his wife of uh, 73 years? So the Bush family is actually one of the more uh, dynasty-esque type families, if you look at them on paper. And they gave uh, U.S. history a lot of amazing photographic moments. And I think that that will be a large part of his legacy. And I understand that it's like a father-son presidential duo. That's lovely. Um, I think he, I think post-presidency, his legacy will probably heavily be um grounded in his family and in the way he loved his wife. And there have been documentaries purely based on just the love story between George uh, George Bush and Barbara. I believe Pierce was her uh, maiden name. I apologize. This might, might not be right. That's right. But that is right. There, is that? Okay. Thank you. Um, but there have been documentaries done by this. They essentially 
wrote the romantic fairy tale. Um, they also took that fairy tale and they showed the world that you can be a little bit more multifaceted. You don't have to just be a president. You don't have to just be a first lady. You get to have slightly grander opinions, but you can still support your spouse. I think the legacy that he will leave behind with, with respect to his family is going to be the larger takeaway from a, what was a great life. I think it's also important to note the legacy that he had um, with the man who beat him, the Bush Clinton Foundation um, has kind of blazed a trail not only with its good works and, you know, the effort that's put forth, but also showing the uh, the bridge that can be built between parties, between men, between communities. I mean, that's something that is definitely lost in today's society where, um, you know, having a global initiative with two presidents, one of which beat the other one and have become great friends and have, you know, running jokes about the socks they wear and that kind of a thing that I think will actually speak. I think everything that happened to him post-presidency will probably speak louder than what might have happened during his presidency. Uh, Around the horn, biggest part of, uh, we got two minutes left in the segment, biggest legacy of Butch 41, Ellen Moore. Decency. David Mortlock. (laughs) That's a good one. I'm gonna I'm gonna second that one as well. Uh, decency and respect for the institutions, but uh, I'll add uh, a steady hand in a troubled world. Laura Chavez. I'll go ahead and be the third on that one. He that's gonna be what it was. He was, he truly loved his fellow man, and he treated everyone with respect, which is something that doesn't always happen anymore. I gotta tell you, my thought on that: he was a selfless patriot. I mean, the guy served this country more than any president we've had in modern, if not in history, on top of the fact um, uh, he was he, he was he was a he was a kind man that uh, and on top of the fact that we probably will never see another president that has served in military service. Hopefully we will, but I don't think we will for a long time, at least. And that's a shame. The fact that he literally, from the time he was 17, gave his life to public service. Pretty amazing. Uh, we're going we're gonna to take a break. When we come back, in case you didn't know it, there was a G20 summit down in South America, down in Argentina. Eh. David, what do you think? <laughs> it's, uh, it's not the G20 I knew. Uh, exactly. We'll be back. This is Backroom Politics Live from Podcast Village in Washington, D.C. Stay with us. Looking for my diamond Cause mama's going home Singing the bezimal blues Oh papa sugar papa How come you do me like you do Papa sugar papa How come you do me like you do
Washington, D.C. This is Backroom Politics with moderator Justin Russell. And we're back here at Podcast Village in Upper Georgetown, Washington, D.C. Here in studio with me, David Mortlock, Alan Moore, and out in the witty city is Lord Chavez. Also joining us online, finally, he is the former Joe Biden political operative, longtime political attorney. And bar certified in the great state of Maryland and the District of Columbia. He is the one we know as Dan Lepner Esquire. Dan, how are you? I am doing well. How is everyone? Oh, we missed you, Dan. Uh, but you're here for the right time. And by the way, uh, working the boards, as always, is the technical genius that we know as Rob the Engineer. Thanks, Rob, for everything that you do. You make us sound good. Hey, uh, in case you didn't notice, last week there was a summit of the top 20 economic powerhouses on the globe, also known as the G20. The heads of the states got together in Buenos Aires, Argentina, and had a barbecue, and all got together and had festive, festive dining and told jokes and hugged each other. Now that's not true, because Donald Trump was there. Uh, it was... It, here's, the, here's what I can't understand. And Dan, I'm going to go to you first. In trying to describe the G20 this year... It was the only word that comes to mind is meh. How do you describe something that really didn't light the world on fire for America this year? There was no, nobody wanted to talk to the president. The president wanted to talk to anybody. Uh, There was really nothing really dynamic going on. He was just down there for good, good beef, I guess. I don't know. Why was President Trump even there? I mean, He is the president of the United States and thus the leader-ish of the free world. Uh, And it's not without precedent for a president to be shunned. Uh, George W. Bush, there there are photos of him uh, standing very awkwardly at one of these conferences uh, near the end of his presidency with uh, world leaders not uh, approaching him for the uh, traditional handshakes. That said, the stuff that really lit uh, things on fire was the the Saudi-Putin 
weird basketball handshake, um, which was disturbing to say the least. Uh, but how much news is really made from these things anyway? I mean, not that they're not important, but to regular people, the G20 is not something that they pay attention to. The importance of it is 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 absolutely there, but it's definitely not what average people pay attention to yeah. and say, you know what came out of this? It's just not there. Do you, do you agree with that, David Mortlock? Well, uh, I don't disagree that uh, it's probably not what most people are following in their day-to-day lives. Uh, so, yeah, Dan's not off the mark. But uh, it, there's no question it's incredibly important. I mean, the G20 is writing the rules of the road, uh, the, the global norms on, on trade, on cyber, on health, on climate. Uh, you know, th- these are es- essentially establishing uh, the standards that, that the largest economies in the world are all going to abide by. But, but Alan Moore, I, I always remember, or at least maybe I, I was looking at it kind of through naive eyes, that when the G20 would get together, we would see some sort of uh, at least attempt to come up with good, sensible economic trade, uh, monetary policies that would benefit Everybody, am I living in a dream world? I, I think you're living through some personal revisionist history here. Um, I think that 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 these are very important meetings, but but rarely in history is there big news that comes out of them. It's all taking one step at a time, one step at a time. But the really important what what we saw in this case, the two big thing takeaways for me on this trip was one. The president was remarkably restrained and didn't make the kind of news that he's been making in these international meetings when he is rude and self-centered and trashes some of his uh, fellow the fellow leaders of of the top. Remember, these are the the top largest. 20 economies in the world. So the no news by the president became news. So that was one Let me interject on that. The question I have then is, is it a matter of Trump was restrained or the rest of the the other 19 members of the G20 didn't give him the opportunity. No, no, no. He he always has the opportunity. He knows how to how to how to take advantage. I think that that two things happened with him. This is my well, three things. He he's maybe be, optimistically maybe he's beginning to learn a little bit that he comes away and he just looks like a jerk and he thinks maybe I don't want to do it quite like that. I hope that he's 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 learning a little bit about that. Secondly, in this particular instance. Um, there was there were a lot of other things going on, including back here the Michael Cohen stuff, Mueller moves that that would presumably cause him to at least be a little bit self reflective, and then and then thirdly, President Bush, who we just talked about, died while he was down there. Right, and 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 he's somebody who's paying attention constantly to the news, and he realizes, wow, people loved him. 
wow, maybe I've been underestimating him. And and so I think all those There's things a funny together. Story to that too. Plus, plus he was going to meet with Putin, and then he called that off. Um, the Khashoggi stuff was hanging around. He wasn't. Sh- he was been taking an enormous amount of grief for that. So there were some other things that were going on uh, here. The the communique that was put together. No one had any confidence that this president would would sign on. And lo and behold. He did. So these were all things that were that were significant in their own way, and I would say more newsworthy this time than than other G20s that have occurred in the past. Not all for all the right reasons necessarily, but just because they were a little bit different. And you, you know, he wanted you know he events. wanted to do that press conference and had to be talked out of it because everybody on staff said, "Hey, look." The forty-first president just died. This is not a good idea. Uh, the fact that also he had to get the COVID news. Well, no, no, yeah, that that. Well, there there's so many other things, but l- let me go to Laura Chavez real quick. Uh, you know, Laura, we had we had heard that the president canceled the Putin meeting because of the overtly aggressive moves by Russia in the Crimea against Ukraine, and I guess by overtly aggressive, you mean by ramming their naval ships with your ships. Uh, it, it's it's funny that the, the press secretary for the Russian foreign minister came back and gave a presser and said, no, President Trump canceled because he's got problems domestically at home. I, I mean, he's... Are, 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 I, I, there's no other way to ask this question is, did President Trump come across as, as Alan put it, restrained, or did he come across as being a loud mouth but weak head of state? I think for the first time he didn't come across as a loud mouth, um, but I do think he came across as a weak head of state in that moment. Um, I think by I think when the Russian press secretary came out and said, oh, no, it's not us, or essentially pulled the reverse of the it's not me, it's you kind of thing. Um, With that moment, the United States had the opportunity to say, like, hey, actually, we understand there are domestic things that are happening within our borders that we do need to address, but we will be revisiting the situation with with all that shit, all that stuff that's going down. We're going to get back to it. We just need to make sure we pay respect to... Um, our 41st president, we make sure we have respect for the Justice Department and everything there. Do we want to respect the Mueller investigation? I think that the U.S. had an opportunity to actually use this uh, G20 summit as a platform for a more level-headed voice than they've ever had. All eyes were on it. They knew that, or everyone knew that there were going to be a couple leaders to watch, including MBS, including Putin, um, including Donald Trump. But I think restraint is maybe something maybe a word you could use but um i have a feeling it was more that he finally had a team behind him who just finally like shut it down and said he couldn't do anything and if you look at his um demeanor his body language throughout the g the g20 he almost looked defeated like someone just took away his ball and wasn't going to give it back he didn't seem like a president so i would say no this wasn't like a positive moment for the U.S., and I don't think he came across as dignified necessarily or as someone who was being restrained out of respect for anything. But I think he missed an opportunity or uh, 
he and his administration missed an opportunity to essentially say, we are, we are canceling this meeting because of this, uh, because of the aggression. Uh, that is whatever right. you heard from the Russia secretary is not actually why we're doing this. We will be coming back to it. Uh, right now, it looks like we just have a lot of stuff just hanging out there. Alan Moore has a let, different take, apparently. Let, let, <laughs> let, let the record let the record show here that that Laura's really disappointed that the president acted calmly <laughs> and sort of presidential, rather than being like the crazy the crazy person. Like, good God, Laura, um, uh, <laughs> we we typically we typically we typically trash this president every time he goes to one of these for his rudeness, his self centeredness, of uh, the misinformation he shares, and this time he shows some restraint. He it's like, oh my God, the president needs to go out and respond. To the to the Russian press secretary, everybody knew that, that we're a little bit surprised and understood there were some some tense things going on between us and the Russians, and he called off the meeting. We don't have to go. I don't think that that, that we were all missing information. And the one thing that did happen, which we haven't mentioned yet, that 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 was that was relevant and and noteworthy was the 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 meeting he had with the Chinese well it was part it was at the G20 and they and they came out with some kind of a tariff truce for no, no, three, they didn't. Or three to four apparently they didn't well, I got I got a 700 point drop in the stock market that says Wall Street doesn't buy that line either well they bought it yesterday yeah. and the stuff happened over the weekend there I mean the market is is all over the place these days they're looking at the Chinese at, said it, it wasn't much of a deal it's kind of a handshake agreement at the moment well the Chinese we're not even sure the Chinese have even bought in on it all it is is a uh, little are we on pa- the trade deal okay. we're not, yet, not, yet, uh, not yet. Right. second second hour <laughs> It's a pause. It's a pause. This is not a solution, and it, it's one of these things that this president has had a shown a history of a greatly grotesquely exaggerating the significant of uh, significance of. But at least there's some kind of an understanding that okay, we're not gonna we're not gonna do the next bump up in tariffs uh, for it's three or four months, and you guys won't have to respond. And there's apparently an understanding of that. That's not the solution. That's not the end game, but it's more than nothing. And it, and and it did come out of the G20, out of the one bilateral meeting that the president of of note that the president did have. And we also have to note at the G20 that a the NAFTA 2.0 was kind of formally agreed to by both Mexico and it was, Canada. It was, signed. it was signed. It was signed. Yeah, ratified. So well, now, well, it was signed. It, was it still signed. has to be ratified the, the, the by the Senate, the, 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 by, the, the, by Congress the, rather. The, the Congress yeah, Congress now has a role. Um, but but I do want to ask Dan Lipner. Nineteen out of the twenty countries in attendance signed the communique regarding the uh, the support of the Paris uh, Climate Change Accords. Again, the U.S. the lone holdout. Is is the fact that we pulled out of the Paris Accords a possible Achilles heel for us diplomatically and as we look at foreign relations as a whole? I mean, it's not good. I mean, the rest of the world seeing the environment as an issue, uh, including the Chinese, uh, is worth noting. But the minority opinion in this country is global warming uh, isn't caused by man-made activity 
And unfortunately, that minority opinion is also held by the president of the United States, who wants to bring the economy back to what it was in the 19th century. Nice try, Dan. So, Good God. <laughs> hey, listen, if, if you want to talk about coal and, and, and steel uh, refining, okay, I mean, that's great. And not that those things are anything to sneeze at, but it's not where the economy is going. And I believe one Mr. Alan Moore frequently talks about the advancing portions of the economy with the technological advancements and that it's not always what it was in the past. And this president would be well served to listen to Alan Moore on this show and his take on the economy. Alan? <laughs> I, I, I'm not sure what he was saying. If it was a compliment, I accept it. It was a compliment. It was very complimentary from Dan, which is unusual towards you. Uh, Laura Chavez, I mean, we're, we're, we're starting to see more and more support for the Paris Accords with our largest allies, in particular Germany, England, France. Uh, is there any... Is there any benefit for the president to be the lone holdout? Is this just a domestic push, or is there some international influence that he hoped that he might be able to make a deal somewhere with this? If there's an international deal out there, I don't see it. Um, and if anything, I would actually argue that uh, while yes, some of our largest allies are the ones that are you know really trying to champion that champion the uh, climate are the Paris Accords, but keep in mind that a lot of those uh, relationships have kind of been weakened in the past years. Um, so, yeah, I don't really know. Maybe there's another uh, alliance out there that really, you know, might be oil-based or, you know, something that doesn't necessarily jive with anything that would help fight climate change that we're really tying our wagon to. But... Fair enough, David. You look like you're pondering this. Yeah, I, I, I think. Uh, I mean, this is this is a good conversation here on on climate. Um, you know, we we the the photo ops, the handshakes, the dynamics among the leaders, they're important. That's absolutely right. But I think more important is the culmination of nine months of negotiations between the world's largest economies on you know what the achievements of the summit are going to be. And I think this. G20 was marked by a distinct lack of ambition and accomplishment, as so many of these leaders uh, and their administrations were absorbed in in domestic uh, troubles, um, including our own president. But, but here's the thing: is it, 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 the climate change thing, the, the the Paris Accord thing, traditionally that's a softball signature that you put, and it shows unity and it shows that well, we're all in unison. It, it, this no. one just seems like a wasted swing. No, so two, so two responses to that, which it, it is definitely not a softball issue, um, right? I remember the G20, being at the G20 three years ago at 3.30 a.m., uh, uh, you know, the, the night before the last day, still negotiating over the climate language. And, and so it's definitely not softball. And, and as we saw leading up to the Paris Agreement, it is definitely not softball. That was years and years in, in the making. Uh, and months and months of very intense negotiation to reach those goals and agree on what the goals were going to be, to agree agree on the accountability tools. So, so 
you know, it is not a softball. It is certainly something that we could be making progress on. And I and I think, look, and, and to be glass half full, there was some very positive language in the leader statement on climate, recognizing the, the UN climate report, um, looking forward to, to progress on on, uh, on the rules, on accountability measures uh, in, in the COP meeting that is, is coming up in Poland next week. Um, you know, but at the same time, to have a standalone paragraph in the leader statement on the United States position on the Paris Agreement and on not just on the Paris Agreement, but going on to talk about, you know, we, we will address climate as it fits in with our other priorities on, <coughs> on energy and economy. It is incredibly astonishing and a complete relinquishment of our, um, our role in the world on that issue. Are we are, separate from the climate issue? Regarding some of the nuances, I mean, Dan Lipner talked about the high five between Putin and uh, the Crown, Saudi Crown Prince MBS. Are we? We also saw interesting dialogue between uh, French President Macron and MBS. We saw uh, a couple of other dynamic shifts of of. Uh, meeting, you know, impromptu meetings that were happening there in Buenos Aires. First question I have regarding this, are we making too much out of the high five between Putin and MBS, Alan Moore? It was just a bizarre thing. It, it, the, the most, the most uncomfortable. Was it, was it calculated? I, I don't know that it was, I, I don't know that it was calculated. The thing that, that, that made me feel a little uh, sort of squirm was, they seemed genuinely happy to see each other, and there seemed to be kind of this almost affection. And I thought, "Wow, where did that come from? And what's behind that?" And that kind of creeps me out because these are these are two bad guys, and when they are all buddy buddy, uh, I start uh, I start getting uncomfortable. So. I don't know how much to make of it, but it it was a it was an odd thing to have to witness, um, and maybe we'll learn more about what's behind it, and maybe it was just one of those moments. David Morlock, are are we starting to see a possible shift? Because I will tell you right now, what it looks like is that uh, President Macron, France, is starting to make ways as kind of being the actual deal maker in some of these nuanced relationships that are going on between even his country and our allies and even us and our allies is is Macron the new kind of focal point as far as uh the next power broker in Europe would is he replaced Merkel I think that's quite possible um I mean a lot of that is because who's left Right. It's certainly not the role the United States is playing anymore. Britain is consumed with Brexit. We're going to uh, talk about as, that as in another nothing, show. And nothing else. Uh, Merkel has had some real domestic problems and is obviously signaled she's, she'll be stepping down you know, relatively soon. Um, who's left to do it? And I think, I think that that does leave Macron. And, and Macron is, is more than willing to seems more than willing to step into that role. And I think someone needs to. It's helpful. But 
you know, it's notable, as we've seen this week, Macron has his own domestic problems. Um, and right. how long will he have the latitude domestically to do that? Alan Moore. Mac- <laughs> Macron, his popularity to home is, is, is 26% right now. He's having a disaster. He's having riots um, in, the, in the streets over gas tax. fuel taxes that are aimed at the, the, part of this world of carbon taxes that, that people who want to, to act on, car, at, on climate change uh, talk about. And the politics of these things, as there and elsewhere, are, are, are potentially disastrous. I mean, here in America, there's no stomach for carbon taxes. We'd much rather give tax credits to people so everybody can own a Tesla rather than to impose a, a some kind of a tax that might actually over time have some influence on on demand. Oh, when I wait, used to wait, be able Alan to run, wait, wait, hold on. Tax? Wait, 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 this, wait, this is news. I know it is, but first of all, first of all, it was cool when I could buy a Tesla and I could drive in the HOV lanes. Now I can't even do that, so why even bother? Now you need to pick up somebody in the slug lanes as well. Yeah, no kidding. No kidding. No, no, <laughs> to, <laughs> to soil the leather in your Tesla. With a slug? For yeah. those of you, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let's, let, let's clarify. Yeah. For, what for those of you who are not in the D.C. area, <laughs> it is a unique D.C. phenomenon that there's something called the slug lines for people who commuters. want to they're drive. Commuters. For, yeah, they're commuters. So people who want to ride in the H, drive their cars in the HOV lanes will pick up strangers and fill their car with strangers so they can get into the HOV lands. So it's kind of a net win and a DC phenomenon, yeah. but it's called the slug lanes you, you, with these you know, you know slug what, riders. I, I, I want to ask, because she's the only female on the show right now. Lord Chavez, were you ever a slug? I was not, no. I, uh, Would you I never ever- had the honor or privilege of going into a stranger's car. And just driving in the hopes that they take me to the place I want. Would you ever? Uh, <laughs> would, you, would you ever be a slug? I'm taking from your answer, no. No, uh, not really my style. But thank you for bringing me into this amazing conversation. <laughs> you know, it, it, we our finger is on the pulse of national policy. That is why we are the best political talk show you've never heard of, Laura Chavez. <laughs> So true. So true. That said, can we go back to the French for a second? Yeah, let's go back to the French. The, the, we, we got we got one more minute. Real, make it real quick because I'm going I'm hearing music at r- some r- point. Routine, routinely, the French protests are always pretty impressive. So I mean, and it's always the French farmers. Americans have something to learn watching the French protest. My favorite was a few years ago. The French farmers rode their tractors into Paris. Yeah, that was awesome. Yeah, that was great. That was cool. We we should we could learn from that. Uh, as always, out in Chicago, Laura Chavez on behalf of David Mortlock, Dan Lipner, Alan Moore. I'm your host and moderator, Justin Russell. Special thanks as always to Audrey Howerton, our executive producer, Rob, the engineer behind the glass. Thank you, brother. Uh, we'll be back later in the week. Stay with us. I'll soon be giving my body up to the ocean That's the way I feel today